This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Well, yes, this is The Conspiracy Show, but uh, for this Sunday, it is Richard Serrettless. Uh, Richard is at home under the weather, and my name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard this evening on The Conspiracy Show. Glad to have you with us, and uh, we've got some interesting things to chat about this evening, but first... Um, I got to get something off my chest. Uh, this morning I was listening to the radio and, uh, not this station, by the way, just another, uh, relatively high profile, uh, radio station uh, here. And the moderator was talking to a scientist and, uh, they were talking about, um, aerosol spraying. And apparently the, I haven't read the book. Uh, I can't really say too much about it, but the, the whole tenor of the, interview was the scientist explaining aerosol spraying and his angle on it was that governments and science should begin to look into aerosol spraying so that we can recover our atmosphere take the pollutants out and stop things like uh, climate change or whatever you want to call it and the acidification of the oceans and lakes and throwing around the ideas of considering having airplanes go up into the air and spraying sulfur and other kinds of compounds in the air to get rid of all of the pollutants. And I could hardly hold back from screaming and yelling at the radio. And the very idea, and for those people who listen to this program on a regular basis, you will know, you will well know, that this kind of stuff, this spraying in the atmosphere, has been going on for at least 15 years, if not longer. There are jets in our airspace, flying over virtually every part of North America. And I was in Prague two summers ago and saw it there, too, on a clear day. The chemtrails, oh, wait a minute, I should correct myself, geoengineering attempts, I call them chemtrails, have been going on for a long time. They're there. I was in Washington last May to attend the citizen hearings on disclosure by our friend uh, Stephen Bassett. And every single morning from 7.30 to 8.30, I would make my way down to the Washington Press Club for the day's hearings and see in the skies over Washington, D.C., all of these chemtrails. 
where has this scientist been? I can't believe it. He's actually suggesting that we consider this. It's been going on for decades. And why this fellow doesn't know about this, and why the radio station that uh, this was broadcast on does, isn't aware of it, somebody on the research team needs to get out of fantasy land. Uh, it really disturbed me, and I know that most of you who um, know a lot about the chemtrail or geoengineering issue uh, would be suitably upset like myself. So I've got that off my chest, and I think I, I feel a whole lot better about it. We've got a, a tremendous hour of, um, of dialogue with you um, this evening, and we hope we can talk to you because I think you will probably want to chat, and that is something that we will uh, engage in if you wish to, 416-360-0740 or toll-free at one 740 if you wish to chat. Our guest this evening... Actually, you know what? Before I do that, what I should do is talk about next week. Yeah, let me do that first. Next week, uh, Richard and I will be on the program, and we will be uh, talking to uh, Tim Ball about the UN Agenda 21. I'll leave that hanging for you because uh, uh, Tim is an expert on Agenda 21, what it means, why it was brought about, and we'll be talking to him next week. And also, we will be speaking to Gary Hasseltine, who is a UFO researcher, former United Kingdom police officer, turned UFO investigator, who has um, actually, he did uh, testify at the citizen hearings back in May and gave some excellent testimony. And he's a a no-nonsense kind of fellow, and I think you're really going to want to Listen to that individual next week along with Richard and I. And also, uh, one of our regular guests, Nelson Thal, returns with another edition of State Psychops. So we need to uh, pay attention to that. Put that on your calendar for next week. Our guest this evening, we're talking about the lost Malaysian jet and all of the controversy around that. And you know as well as I do that just about every radio station, television station in, uh, in North America and throughout the world has been throwing out ideas about what happened to the Malaysian jet, the Boeing 777. And this evening's guest, Dr. actually Daniel Kaiser, he's a pilot, explorer, research scientist, and veteran. Uh, he is a recipient of the Presidential Unit Citation presented by then-President Jimmy Carter. Uh, Mr. Kaiser has worked on an OSI special ops and counterintelligence operative uh, from 1974 to 1979, including tours of duty throughout the Asian Pacific Theater of Operations. And he's got a tremendous background in all of this information, and he's going to share with us probably one of the most difficult to swallow, understand, consider, it is a completely divergent line of thinking, and uh, I know I've read some of the notes uh, prior to the program about it, and um, uh, Daniel is very, very concerned about what happened to this jet and what it might mean. So let's uh, welcome Daniel Kaiser to the Conspiracy Show. Hello, Daniel. How are you? How are you doing, Victor? I'm sorry to hear that Richard's out of the weather. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah he's, he's been fighting it all week, Daniel. I don't, uh, and he's, uh, he's usually a pretty healthy guy. <laughs> Maybe somebody doesn't want him to talk. 
you know, that's part of it too. Well, uh, it's just great to have you on the program because I, as many people in North America, have been, you can't turn on your television or radio without hearing about this story. And it has literally captivated millions throughout the planet uh, for the last, what, two or three weeks, easily three weeks, I think 22 days. Isn't that about right? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's it's something that has really uh, risen to the surface and encompassed and literally taken over, uh, I guess, the media. And uh, before we get into the theory that uh, that you're espousing, and when I read some of the notes that, uh, that Richard gave me in preparation for the show, I, I literally, um, I was just stunned. It, it really, it frightened me. It absolutely frightened me. And talking to some of the friends that uh, I, I, I have um, who, who do listen to the show quite often, just throwing out a few ideas, it's something that did not occur to them. So before we get into actually the, 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 the chronology uh, of, of your theory, let's talk about the chronology of what happened, as far as you know, uh, about this jet taking off, getting into the air, and then disappearing. Can you just sort of outline the chronology that, uh, that, the, that you know uh, occurred? Well, and I'll... I don't have all the specifics here right here in front of me with all the times and, and the mm-hmm. turns and the altitudes and all of that. Yeah. Um, but I can say is that the what I would like to do is to cut through the propaganda, mm-hmm. the Main Street media news, and get right down to what the facts are. And the facts are is that we had a, uh, a Flight 370, which is a Boeing 777, take off heading towards uh, China on a scheduled passenger um, flight, and all of a sudden it turned directions and headed out over or towards the Indian Ocean and shut off their uh, transponder equipment, uh, which is common with a hijacking situation, mm-hmm. uh, turned off its beacon locators and uh, basically went dark. Um, it, raised, it, it flew to an altitude of over 45,000 feet. And then systematically and sporadically, uh, according to the facts, um, the plane came down in a very high-speed dive down to 5,000 feet, leveled out, and basically disappeared. Hmm. Now, when you say um, uh, turned off the transponder and the, uh, the location beacons, could you just, for the benefit of our audience, just tell us what, um, uh, what a transponder is and the other location beacons are? Well, basically with the aircraft, transponders are and uh, location beacons are, are used for uh, being able to identify the aircraft for air traffic controllers. It shows other, uh, the air traffic controllers where the aircraft is, what kind of aircraft it is. It, it shows an ID, um, which uh, the word is squawks. It squawks or talks or continually beeps this information saying, hey, I'm flight 307 or 370. You know, I'm Boeing 777, and I'm at this altitude, and I'm at this airspeed, and I'm heading in this direction. I see. So it gives it gives everybody in the um, in the ATC, the air traffic controllers, information about what the plane is, what flight it is, where it is, where it's heading, and they keep on. I guess uh, you know, if it's flying over um, over ground, it's they, they're handed off to different locations. Is that correct? As the plane moves uh, th- through yeah, the air. Absolutely. Depending on the radar and what airspace that you're in, they can be handed off several times Mm -hmm. to anywhere from military bases, uh, operations to uh, civilian airlines uh, or civilian air traffic control centers, that type of thing. When the plane took off, um, who was flying it, as far as you know? 
Well, when it took off, it was the two crew members. It was the captain and the co-pilot, uh, both of them Malaysian and both of them Muslim. I see. At any time, do you think that that, uh, that changed, uh, or would, would they have been the ones that um, perhaps accomplished these other maneuvers? I can't speculate. Uh, it'd be pure speculation because mm-hmm. the facts, I can't. When I'm talking to you tonight, I'm going to give you what the facts are. Okay. Then I will give you what, um, how these facts add up and what I consider to be, and my team considers to be, a logical and predictable outcome. That doesn't mean that we're right on the money. That doesn't mean this is absolutely going to happen. But if Mm -hmm. you base it all on the facts, I think you're going to find out that uh, this scenario that we're giving you here is absolutely plausible. Yeah, I guess for sure. Yeah, we uh, when I do the research that I do, we we call what you just explained converging lines of evidence. They may be uh, individual factoids, but uh, most of these factoids point in a certain direction. And if you get enough factoids pointing in a certain direction, uh, those converging lines of evidence lead to only one conclusion. I guess that's what you're leading towards. Tell us about when you say you use the word team. What, what did that mean? You said you and your team. Tell us about that. Well, I've got a. Um um, I've got a connections with other uh, engineers, other scientists, uh, other researchers throughout the world that I talk to on a daily basis. We share information back and forth with each other. Um, things, for example, like uh, we worked, some, we did some work on Kosovo uh, during the Balkans. Uh, we we've done work on uh, some of the stuff that's going on in Israel. We've done work on different disappearances and kidnappings, things like. That. Okay, well, that's, um, we're going to have to hold on there for a second because we have to take a break, Daniel. And when we come back on the other side, we'll, uh, we'll get more into um, this absolutely stunning theory that, uh, that, um, that we're going to hear about. My name is Victor Vigiani, and this is The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. And you just might need those numbers tonight, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, after we hear what our guest Daniel Kaiser has to say about the loss of the Malaysian jet, Boeing 777, um, you just may want to, you know, send in your two cents. In any case, um, Daniel, you mentioned off the top there that the that the aircraft went into a very steep dive uh, at around 45,000 feet. First of all, how steep was the dive? And then, um, three questions actually, how steep was the dive? Uh, how far down did it go? And why did it go into such a steep dive? Well, there's, a, there's two, uh, you actually bring up something I'm going to bring up with you a little later in the show, but I'll mm-hmm. go ahead and do it now. Sure. That the 777, that particular aircraft, has an automated landing system on it because the 777 is a fly-by-wire. So if you have the autopilot on, and if both the pilots and the entire crew and everybody in the plane all suffocated because, let's say, whatever, a massive decompression, that plane, if it was on autopilot, will fly itself to its destination and physically land itself by itself. My goodness. Okay. That's how sophisticated this particular 777 is. It has an operational range of between 5,000 and 9,300 nautical miles. Fully loaded, it can fly 
5,000 nautical miles easily. That's full fuel, full cargo, everything. If it was stripped down, this 77, and it just had a light cargo mm-hmm. and full fuel, it has a range. This comes from Boeing. This is not for me. It has a range of over 11,000, almost 12,000 miles. That's basically you can hit. That plane can go anywhere in the world. Boeing's maximum payload on that aircraft is 104 tons. And it has a cruising altitude of over 43,000 feet. So what you asked me was is that the aircraft went up to 43,000, 45,000 feet, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, after a short period of time, in turn, did a steep dive and then leveled out. Right. We figure that the only reason why the aircraft would go to such a high altitude would be to depressurize the cabin and to get rid of or suffocate all the passengers. I see. The steep dive then would be where the pilots were trying to get down below because the pilots have more oxygen. They have about 45 minutes worth of oxygen aboard and emergency oxygen. The passengers have between 12 and 15 minutes depending on the number of people, that type of thing. So if you've gotten rid of the passengers and possibly the flight crew, who knows, Mm -hmm. and you in turn take this steep dive and you level out below 10,000 feet so you can have now get off oxygen, Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we found that was a key indicator here was is that the facts show that the Boeing 777 or Flight 370 did not do a straight dive into the ground. It did not dive straight down. It can't do that because of the way the electronics are and the computer systems on the 777 are, it will not allow the aircraft, as a safety measure, will not allow the aircraft to go beyond its structural limitations as far as overspeed. Even with pilot input? Correct. Even with pilot input, you cannot physically do it. It's impossible. So what would happen is, even if you took the stick and, and smashed it all the way forward, mm-hmm. straight towards the ground, through the engines on full, when that reached its maximum speed, safety speed, that's pre-programmed into their flight system, the aircraft would automatically cut back the engines, make a bank to the right, make a bank to the left, pull the nose, begin to pull the nose up, whatever it would do, but it would bring it back, automatically bring it back to a safe or relatively safe or to its maximum airspeed that it can take. That would account for what they called was a real, um, as they reported was, it was a very strange type of, it would turn left in its side, then it would turn right in its side, then it would go up and slow down, then it would speed up. That's because the computer systems, according to our research, that would be because the computer systems were keeping the aircraft from overspeeding and breaking up in the air. I see. So when, so when the, yeah, so just let me interrupt you there. So when the transponders and the beacon locators were turned off, did the did any ATC uh, air traffic controller or whoever um, did they pick up the fact that uh, these a the, the transponders were turned off um, either manually or otherwise? Did they pick up the fact that this thing went into the steep dive, or is this something that you're that you're um, uh, sort of putting forward now? No, it's it, the ATCs. Uh, this actually part of this was found out later. 
by the uh, Boeing people themselves and the manufacturers of the engines. Um, the engines have, unbeknownst to most pilots, the engines are set up to where they have a pinging system that is able to communicate with satellites to tell how to go back to the manufacturer to tell the manufacturer how the engines are operating. I see. Okay. And there's no way to control that. You cannot disconnect that from the cabin. I see. So now why aren't we hearing this on the regular media newscasts? For You're our... asking me to, to speculate. I think that mainstream media is, um, I think they're, they're being manipulated by whoever, whatever, um, to, uh, with this information. I think we've been sent on a wild goose chase. Our, our indications are when that aircraft turned and headed back for the Indian Ocean with no pinger, um, with no ID on, no way to, per se, track it uh, in real time, that uh, when it went to the 45,000 feet, the pilots dropped it down as fast as they could down to less than 5,000 feet. And by the way, that only took a couple of minutes to get down there, so they were really in a steep dive. Some of the calculations say close to 700 miles an hour the aircraft was diving. My and goodness. Pull up, slow down, and then back down again, the speed would come back up. Do we, know how, do we know how loaded the craft was? Was it filled to capacity? Do you know any, any idea? Well, they had a full load of fuel, uh, and from what I've been told, from what I've read, they had a full load of fuel and about 200 or 230 passengers on board, I believe, mm-hmm. or something in that neighborhood. Right. Um, the fuel capabilities of that aircraft that were on there would give it a range, uh, depending on their uh, their speed and, and weather conditions, things like this, would give it a range of well over 6,000 nautical miles. I see. Okay, now we have to <laughs> take this in a completely different direction. We've gone over some of the information to give our listeners a foundation of what might have happened up in the air. Now I'd like you to throw at us um, the theory of why this happened, how it was commandeered, and what you might think, you can handle this any way you want, uh, might be the reasoning behind the disappearance of this jet. What's your your first um, comment on that? Well, we've got... The team and I basically come up with two theories for uh, this aircraft. Both of them are not good. Um, Both of them consider that the aircraft has been hijacked to be used as a weapons platform. Now, we feel that the the mainstream media is, and a lot of the governments, for some reason, are not being told the truth, and they're never going to find, you're not going to find any wreckage of this aircraft. I really believe it. That's why there hasn't been any bodies floating, Um, and I think that they're sending people all around until everybody gets tired of listening to it, and everybody will sit back and say the aircraft just crashed, and that's it. That gets these terrorists off the hook. The two things that we believe is, first one is, is that we can use this aircraft as a weapons platform because of its long range. We could put a small nuclear device, something like Korea has, which is supposed to be 500 kilotons uh, in the 500 kiloton range, or something maybe Iran has put together that might be smaller or might be a little bit larger. We put aboard this aircraft and sent over or sent out to any city, including Israel or let's say, you know, 
mainland USA, for example. Uh, this aircraft could fly over the North Pole, come down through Canada, and detonate above the United States. And uh, basically, with that explosion at altitude, could take out the power grids of Canada, the United States, and parts of Mexico. Hmm. Turns turns back to the horse and buggy days. What an incredible scenario. So you're saying that if this was uh, the kind of hijacking that you're alluding to, that this craft somehow went into its dive, did what it did, went down below 10,000 feet, and somehow um, eluded radar or did whatever uh, you can do at that, at that flight level, and then somehow landed somewhere to be uh, hidden, commandeered, and covered up somehow, and then potentially to be used as a weapon of mass destruction at some point in the future. Is that, is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, Victor, let me try this. We've plotted out that from the information that we have, um, there's a place called Maldives, or Dyes, Maldives, which is just north of um, uh, Diego Garcia, which mm-hmm. is a U.S. military installation. Big, huge nuclear bomber base. Do you think that the U.S. nuclear bomber base would have um, probably the latest and greatest radar and make sure that nothing got close to them? Mm-hmm. You would assume. Of course, you? yes, of course. Okay. Yeah. One of my sources um, that has a connection with the people at, uh, at Diego said that their radar quote-unquote, was down for maintenance MS during the time that this so-called, uh, the Flight 370, uh, basically had been reported to fly over the northern island of Maldives. Maldives. Mm-hmm. From that trajectory, it's a clear and easy shot. Uh, It's basically about 3,600 nautical miles from the turnaround point uh, back in Asia for them to land in Somalia. Now, why we chose Somalia was this. Somalia has no formal government, none. There's no law, no international law, per se, there. Mm -hmm. Second off is, is that the the southern part of that nation is completely under control by the radical Muslim group, Al-Qaeda, funded, that type of thing. In doing so, there are, just in, in a short amount of period of time, we had located over 10 runways that were seven, abandoned runways, that were over 7,000 feet, some of them as long as 10,000 feet, that could easily handle landing this aircraft in. Okay. From Somalia, who knows where it went? It could be parked there. There's hangars. If you do the research, uh, if you do look on Google, um, you do uh, Google Earth, you can actually come in and start looking for some of these abandoned runways or military installations in Somalia you'll find that there's a lot that's there. Now, mainstream news told us there was no place this plane could land. There was no place a runway was big enough to to handle it or take care of it. Which is rubbish, which is rubbish, basically. The facts are not there. I mean, the facts are that there's plenty of places in a lawless land where there is no military, there is no real radar to check it. This aircraft, according to the people in Maldives, 
there were over 100 farmers and citizens in Maldives that said this plane came over at palm tree level. It was so loud that it shook the people's houses. But nobody wants to talk about that part. Right. And there, okay. you're talking about a, a plane is capable of flying around 50 to 100 feet off the deck, off the uh, off the ground, at over 600 miles an hour. Absolutely, sir. You're absolutely correct. So this... with the fuel aboard, the time that was allotted, what could have happened before anybody had really, mainstream media had picked up anything, this thing is sitting somewhere, or was sitting somewhere, either getting refueled, or hidden, you know, camouflage from the satellites, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. My big thing here is this, Victor, and I'm going to step way out on a branch here, and I'm going to probably get my butt knocked off. That's that's quite all right. I'm used to being out on a limb with good friends. Go ahead. Okay. Um, I'm going to say the U.S. military, I do not believe for one second that Diego Garcia radar was down. I'm ex-military. We do not take down the main radar and leave yourself completely blind. It just doesn't happen. You do the backup, you have a secondary, you use ship, whatever, but you do not make yourself blind, especially with a B-52 bomber base. Mm -hmm. So they knew, the people, the U.S. military had to know, absolutely in my mind, my heart of hearts, had to know this aircraft was in their airspace. No doubt they about either, it. They either let it go by, or the U.S. military shot it down. Now, I would be thankful to heavens to find out that it was shot down before it could be used in one of the two scenarios that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Okay, that would make me real happy, especially for the millions of people that this thing, this weapons platform, could deliver the death and destruction to. But... I don't feel that that's happened. I believe that it's been allowed to go wherever it was going. I know that with this corridor and with the traffic that's there, with the military units that are there, there are gaps or holes at low altitude that a plane could weave through that make its way to uh, Somalia without much radar detection. And in doing so, you would have to have somebody on the inside giving you that flight plan. Of course, yeah. That, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, you know, it's, I'm just going to get into a break here in a second. But, uh, Daniel, you know what? I think you're, you're describing, I'm sitting here in my chair just literally shivering. You're describing a, almost another 9-11 scenario here. Um, a Hollywood script couldn't be written any better than this. And when you hear about the number of jets uh, that the U.S. Air Force took out of the air uh, on, on September 11th, uh, this kind of um, is a puzzle that is fitting together uh, in, in a very, very conspiratorial way. And, and like you said in some of your notes to Richard, it, this frightens you. I, I know it does. So um, anyways, let's, um, let's take a break, and uh, we'll come back on the other side and, and listen to more of what Daniel Kaiser has to say about the lost Malaysian flight. Welcome back. We're speaking with uh, Daniel Kaiser, who is uh, unraveling a scenario um, uh, he and his team have put together that the lost Malaysian jet has in some way been commandeered and is now sitting someplace at a location 
um, taken by certain individuals for whatever reason. And he's putting together a theory that this thing, this jet, is sitting somewhere ready to be used in the future for some type of operation, I guess in a quote-unquote terrorist scenario. And I don't know about you, but if uh, Daniel's theory is correct, uh, it's just a waiting game. And if, in fact, it's true, and all the facts seem to be pointing towards that, um, if this is true, we just have to be sitting and waiting for some sort of thing to unfold that is not very pleasant. And one of the things that uh, Daniel did suggest is what this thing could be used for, to set off some sort of nuclear device over North America and, and knock out everything. And then within a year, um, we're all toast. <laughs> Uh, Daniel, if if you were to speculate, I'm going to ask you just to kind of think about the political implications of this or what the politics or the military are doing right now, the politicos. Is it like a duck, uh, you know, sitting on water? Everything's sort of fine on the surface, but they're just treading water like hell to try to figure out what's going on. And they're just sort of scrambling behind the scenes to, to locate this thing other than what's being portrayed on the media in terms of a search. What do you think the intelligence agencies at the highest level possible are doing right now? Can I, uh, let me see, let me try two words for you, okay? Well, actually, there's, there's going to be four. Okay. It's, one of them is CYA, okay? And the second one is going to be plausible deniability. Okay. Okay, if you take those two factors, which most in almost all countries do, the first thing they do is they look at CYA. Mm -hmm. The second thing they do is look for plausible deniability. I think that there are factions in the global new world order that have, um, how do I want to say it, uh, insider information and control of many facets of countries in Europe, in the U.S., um, even in the China and Russia areas, um, and all through uh, Saudi Arabia and all through that area. I think that there are, are forces to play here that are dark, that are deeper than what is on the surface, and I think that they're the ones that are making the choices. Have you ever read the book Manchurian? Yes, I have, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. That kind of gives you the idea or concept of what can actually go on in a, in a black ops situation, or what you call uh, a deep cover situation. And with my years being involved with the OSI, um, we had several clandestine operations, um, including uh, delivering, um, uh, let's see, certain banned chemicals to certain factions in Southeast Asia. I'll put it that way so I don't get into too much trouble. That's okay, yeah. At the classified operation. But we as young troops did not know what we were doing. We were following orders. It wasn't until later that we understood what the silver chemistries were. I see. <laughs> and so this type of operation could easily take place uh, in a black ops, a nefarious sort of way. And um, I think it's been allowed to happen. I think it's been planned out. It looks too clean cut. I think they're doing the propaganda thing. Uh, one of the things, uh, Victor, that I wanted to go through here was working on a master's degree for emergency and disaster management. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, which was sad for me, and it, I, I'm having a hard time dealing with it, especially with, with classes, that 
of the emergency and disaster management focus is not on helping people. It's working with the political game, working with the local politicians, looking at who can make the most money, who can survive economically, and where can those funds be transferred to with the banking industry. That's what emergency and disaster management truly is about under FEMA. That's what I'm studying to do. And that really upsets me because people are like last on the list. Hmm. That is very disturbing because the, I guess what you're saying is that some of the things that have happened in the past have been just, they've been set up. And I, like Pearl Harbor, for example, or the Gulf of Tonkin, or even 9-11, there, there is a reasoning behind it happening other than the explanation that we've been given. Absolutely. And I think, Victor, you're doing an outstanding job. I've never talked with anybody that is so in the know and has as much broad-based knowledge as you do. I commend you. Bravo. No, thank you. Uh, I, I believe sincerely that exactly what you just said. I think that this is uh, um, exactly what is going on as a false flag or preparing us for a false flag. Now, in my personal opinion, an opinion of not all my team, but the majority of my team, believes that the U.S. would be your primary target and Israel would be your secondary target. Now, several of the people in our group, and one of, actually two of the gentlemen that we have in our group, are actually from Israel. They feel that Israel is the primary target for this. That, that's logical. Um, yeah, that's logical. Sure. I can see that. One of the scenarios that absolutely made me cringe and almost, and I sat back, as you said earlier, when I found this out, I sat back in my chair and, and I actually shook. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that if you take, let's see if I can put this in a, in a scenario. I was hoping that we could put some pictures up so people could see what was there. You, you know what, Daniel? Let me hold you there, okay? We've got to take a bit of a break, and on the other side, we'll come back, and you can take some time to think about that because uh, we've just got one last break, and we can get back into it again, okay? Yeah. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, and we're talking to uh, Daniel Kaiser regarding the lost Malaysian flight. My name is Victor Vigiani, and stay with us. And welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett this week here on The Conspiracy Show. And we have on the line uh, Daniel Kaiser, who is talking to us about the lost Malaysian flight that we've all been kind of inundated by over the past three weeks. And just want to sort of lay something on you very uh, very briefly. And it's a quote that I, that I use in an article of mine, and it's very appropriate for right now. And it says, Participation in the North American democracy is largely based on the belief that citizens should never be released into the world until they have been properly sedated. This is a quote taken from an unknown convocation address in university. Not only does it magnify the state of denial and ignorance in which a massive proportion of the North American population live, it is also an historical testament to the lies we are all prepared to accept for the sake of convenience. And I think what we're talking about tonight, having this this jet, this Boeing 777, sit somewhere on the planet, um, you know, ostensibly taken by terrorists to be used at another time as a weapon of mass destruction, we'll get a little bit more into that in a minute with Daniel, but... I don't know about you, it really disturbs me. So, Daniel, you were going to make a point uh, just before the break. Um, Want to sort of expand upon it? Yeah, what I was going to say is, is that we were talking about Israel, um, and we were talking about this as a weapons platform. 
for example, uh, on our scenario two, we had talked about it in scenario one as an EMP weapon, and we can go into that a little deeper here in a minute. Or mm-hmm. scenario two, whether it can be used because of its of the aircraft's large carrying capability, tonnage-wise, this aircraft technically could be filled with dirty waste, nuclear waste, okay? Um, and there has been reports, verified reports, that the nuclear waste dumping area uh, in Siberia has been systematically raided by Muslim activists. So some of that highly radioactive material is beginning to to be taken away or hauled off or whatever they're doing with it. But so let's go back real quick is that under this scenario, whether they're going to make a dirty bomb, they could easily fly over, blow this aircraft up with a full load of nuclear waste aboard the aircraft and basically make tele and anything within seven, ten mile radius of Tel Aviv completely uninhabitable for the next thousand years. Or they could do that to New York. Or they could do it to Montreal. Or they could do it to Winnipeg. Or they could do it to, you know, the, the list goes on. It could be done to London. So that's a pretty terrifying type thing. You're going to get a lot of uh, a, a lot of traction, but it's going to be in a localized area as far as the terror factor would be huge um, with them being able, with the terrorist group, to pull the dirty bomb type thing off. Now, if you really want to cut the head of the snake off, you go with scenario one, and that's where you use it as an EMP weapon. Back in 1940. I believe, and somebody I'm sure will quote me if I'm wrong here uh, on the date, there was a EMP test that was done in the South Pacific by the U.S. military with a 120 kiloton nuclear weapon that was exploded with an airburst that burnt out the streetlights in Hawaii over 1,400 miles away. So within 1,400 miles, with 120 megaton or, or kiloton rather nuclear weapon, um, and I think it was less. I think the altitude was at 1,500 feet. I'm sure somebody correct me if I'm wrong here, but it wasn't very high, and we got 1,400 over 1,400 miles. Streetlights were blowing out. Communication systems were being knocked out, and even back then. In, in the late 40s, most of our equipment was pretty robust. It was pretty hardcore, heavy-duty type of stuff. Right. Not like the electronics we have today, which is extremely fragile. If you if you did the same EMP thing over Israel, I do not believe that. I think Israel has, has hardened their systems enough to where they could probably survive it. At least the military would have done that. So we have to switch the scenario back, and this is where I come in. I say, I think the U.S. is a, is a major target. Um, and my Israeli people say, no, 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 it's us. But if you did this, let's say over Nebraska, at, and you had an altitude of less than a mile, right. and you're at 5,000, 6,000, 4,000, 6,000 feet, mm-hmm. and you used a 500 kiloton nuclear weapon, that would be one that has been proven that North Korea has, and one that could be developed by Iran. 
and you set that off, the EMP, the gamma radiation burst yield of that particular weapon system would turn the North American continent back to the days of horse and buggy in less than 15 seconds. In less than, sorry? Yeah, nothing would work. My goodness. Now, what that means, and people don't understand that, and you, your job and, and Richard's job is to make sure people wake up to what, what I'm talking about here. That's no sewer. That's no refrigerators. That's no grocery stores. That's no potable water. That's no traffic lights, no movies, no 911. Nothing. That, no air conditioning. That means no cell phones. And the real problem that we have, okay, if you can, if you want to back up what I'm saying here, do you remember the power outage back in the 70s? Oh, yes, very well. Okay, and the one that took out part of Canada and took out most mm -hmm. of the northern United States? Oh, yes. Okay. That was just from an EMP pulse from the sun and a minor one to boot. Take that and multiply that 100-fold. What do you think is going to happen to the Canadian people? Now, honestly, Canada, the Canadian people, probably in a much better situation. They're not quite as polite, not quite as spoiled rotten as Americans. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I know, uh, I know what you mean. Oh, you follow me. Okay, they're hardy. They're more like the Alaskan people. People in Alaska mm -hmm. go, my power is off so wide. Okay, yeah. you know, let's go out and do what we got to do and get her done. That's not going to happen in the U.S. And a 500 kiloton weapon going off at a mile or above the United States, central United States, most of Canada's major cities are going to be wiped out for, as far as electricity. Mm -hmm. Most of, almost all of the United States will be wiped out. We will not get back our generators. We will not be able to get, it could be years, to get power back. FEMA, in their records and their tests, and what they say is that within one year, 90% of the United States population will be dead from starvation, crime, and disease. So you're saying that FEMA already has a, a, a scenario outlined as a result of this? Yeah. Is that Absolutely. Yes, yes, they do. The entire government of the United States of America under martial law will be transferred completely over to FEMA. FEMA will automatically take complete control of the U.S. government. There will be no elections. There will be nothing. All your, all food production, back, all food production in the United States will belong to them. That includes a little garden plot on your deck, on your apartment where you're growing your tomatoes. That becomes immediately under the control of the United of FEMA, Department of Homeland Security. And they and they would take over as quote unquote the government. Everything, absolutely, no elections. We're talking about street. Uh, what was it? Um, I'm trying to think of the movie where uh, uh, the. Uh, Drudge, I think it was called Drudge, where they had street justice, where you, the, right. the cops could do street executions on the spot. Mm -hmm. That is what FEMA is prepared for. That is what will happen if you do not comply.
apply, you will be eliminated. Well, let me ask you then, if that's the scenario that FEMA seems to be um, uh, having in its back pocket, could they use not the actuality of this event, could they use the threat of this event to um, to insist on some type of martial law? Yeah. Um, there starts, things start to get a little convoluted here, was we here in the United States and South Carolina are missing three to four nuclear weapons that have been moved out by the so-called powers-to-be, um, administrative powers, not military, but administrative powers, uh, have checked out four nuclear weapons. <laughs> and we do not know where the... We know two of them have been destroyed off the coast of the United States uh, in a deep-sea explosion. But there still are two missing. Um, and where they ended up, nobody seems to know yet. I see. So if this is a government operation, and if they do want to take complete control and bring in FEMA, and want to bring in the Department of Homeland Security, just like President Obama uh, promised us uh, back in 2008, that uh, he wanted a civilian uh, defense force um, under the control of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, that he wanted it stronger than the U.S. military. Why do you believe that the Department of Homeland Security needs 16 billion rounds of ammunition? Very good question. <laughs> <laughs> my point, <laughs> my point made. So, if you add these scenarios up uh, with this weapons of mass destruction, this platform that's available to them. Um, we've got tremendous worldwide attention to this plane that's missing. If this plane shows up and bombs Tel Aviv or drops a nuke over Tel Aviv or crashes into Tel Aviv, uh, the world's going to know that it was a hijacker and that Al-Qaeda took care of it, 911. 9-1-1 went around the world. Now, if you want to take the head off the snake and the United States, quote, unquote, is a snake, then you would do the EMP pulse thing over the United States. You would kill more Americans. You would get Americans. It would be a Mad Max scenario type of thing over the United States. And we are not prepared. Well, I, I don't know what to make of all of this. Is uh, it's just it's, it's almost like we're anticipating, as I said earlier, another 9/11 scenario. And uh, you're outlining something so insidious, Daniel. That um, I mean, it, it 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 makes it pales all of the information that we've garnered so far. It makes it, virtually everything that I've heard about this, about the scenario, the whole search and everything, just almost become uh, irrelevant. And and to be and be looking for a, a plane that didn't crash, and you know, and do all of that in the face of the possibilities that you're outlining. Uh, what if someone in the media did get a hold of this? Uh, you know, whoever might be listening now, what could they possibly do? To bring this forward? I think they should possibly, um, if they're a good investigative reporter, would be to contact people that you guys have in your circle mm -hmm. of experts that have connections. Begin to be able to put together a team or members that, a board that could go in front of the people of this world and, and get coverage, at least on the alternative media side, 
Um, I do not believe that mainstream media would allow it. Um, and so I do not think that the mainstream media will happen. Mainstream media is working on, and the government is working on, the fact is that we are reactionary. We're not proactive. We are reactionary as far as people go. Well, that's true, yes. And the problem with this scenario is there is nothing to react to. There is no way to fix this. There is no way to, to pick up after this gets done. Mm-hmm. There is only survival. And you, you tell me, Victor, okay, and have your audience out there. They can, they can come on and they can give me a hard time, and I'm going to say to them straight up, Everything that I've said here is technologically possible. Everything that I say here, history has dictated that this actually can be a scenario. As you said earlier, the Gulf of Tonkin, you know, um, the false flags with Pearl Harbor. The, The list goes on and on. The United States government, in my opinion, Okay. 3,000 people. Yeah, we got we to gotta cut you off there, Daniel. Sorry about that. We're right at the top of the hour, and I wish we could go on further with this. Um, we, radio's like that. <laughs> I want to thank you. I thank you wanna, for, for, for joining us this evening, and uh, we'll talk again soon. It's been my pleasure. Thank okay, you. Good night. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show, and my name is Victor Vigiani. We'll see you again next week. Good evening, my name is Victor Vigiani and I'm sitting in for Richard Serrett this evening on The Conspiracy Show. Richard is uh, under the weather and uh, we're running the ship alone this evening here on The Conspiracy Show. There have been a number of things in the news lately that uh, have really kind of uh, disturbed us in, in a lot of ways. And one of the things that, um, that I picked up on this morning and uh, I think most of the regular listeners to the program will identify with this. I was listening to the radio, and uh, it was just uh, sort of going about my business. And uh, on one of the larger radio networks here in Canada, um, there was an interview uh, by a well-known uh, moderator on the radio. And he was interviewing a scientist and the interview was about aerosol spraying, and this scientist had written a book about the, uh, the possibilities of, of uh, aerosol spray to control the weather, to um, reduce the amount of uh, acidity in the lakes and uh, the oceans, and just experimenting, or at least looking at the possibility that governments should investigate the possibility of spraying aerosol components. He, he named sulfur to be one of them, uh, plus other, other components too. And that spraying this information, or rather this, um, uh, this substance, would somehow create a better uh, control over uh, the pollution that we seem to be experiencing, that we've uh, caused since the, I guess, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. And as I was listening to this, I became really kind of concerned the reason being because this scientist was saying that we should begin to investigate the possibility of spraying this stuff in order to control the environment, uh, get rid of pollution, etc., with these chemicals. And uh, I give my head a shake, and maybe you will too. I don't think I'm mistaken when I can tell you that 
chemtrails, oh, pardon me, wait a minute, let me get that straight. Geoengineering has already been going on for a long time. 10 years, maybe 15 years, could be longer. You look in the air, you see the chemtrails. Those of you who listen to the program often, we've heard that many, many times. Those of you who have visited the internet talking about uh, the chemtrails in the air. And this scientist was totally unaware of the fact that this kind of spraying protocol has been going on for a long, long time. His suggestion was that we just begin to look at it and experiment with it. Now, I can't believe that mainstream media has not yet picked up on the fact that chemtrails, or geoengineering as they may want to call it, has been occurring for a number of years already. And you can see it. I witnessed, I witnessed it myself. Uh, I was in Prague two summers ago on very clear days. And the chemtrails there were just all over the place, crisscrossing the sky, doing all kinds of weird and nasty things, and nobody gave it a second thought. I was in Washington, D.C. last May and uh, to cover the citizen hearings on disclosure uh, operated by Stephen G. Bassett. And uh, every morning I would leave about 7.30 or 8 o'clock and, and make my way downtown to the Washington um, uh, Press Club. And I would witness over Washington, D.C., all of the crisscrossing of the chemtrails there, too. And this is going on right over Washington, D.C., and I'm sure each one of you have seen it in one way or another. So my question is, why would a large radio network bring on a scientist and begin any kind of dialogue about the so-called phenomenon of uh, chemtrails without really investigating what he was saying? Just an experiment, or is it really, really going on? That's my question to you. And if you are out there and you wish to comment on this, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. You can call here at 416-LOCALLY-360-0740 or call internationally, if you wish to, toll-free 1-866-740-4740 if you wish to make some sort of contribution about that comment because it did disturb me. And uh, I guess it's one of the reasons why I firmly believe, and it's my estimation, that we're living in a bit of a dream world and, and a world that's not giving us the, the full information about what we are uh, existing in. And that is my assessment, okay? It may not be yours, but it definitely is my assessment. And I have something here that might uh, kind of irritate some people, but I'm going to uh, put it forward anyways. And it's a quote that, that I used in one of the articles that I wrote several years ago, and it's very, very appropriate for, for what's going on right now. And the quote reads this, Participation in North American democracy is largely based on the belief that citizens should never be released into the world unless they are properly sedated. This quote has been taken from a convocation address that I found. But it not only is taken from that address, it really magnifies the state of denial and ignorance in which a large and massive proportion of North American people live in. It also is an illustration of an historical testament to the lies we are prepared to accept for the sake of convenience. And it, it really does uh, fascinate me how this can happen in a, in a large modern society with all of the internet that's out there, with all of the kinds of things that are going on in terms of our ability to grab onto information 
and then not only grab onto that information, but promulgate the information to a point where everybody knows about it. And why the restrictions? What is going on that we are so restricted, that we are so ultimately blinded by the fact that this information is repressed in a certain way? And the issue that I deal with, uh, the UFO issue, is one very, very good example of this. And uh, this information is, by and large, stifled to a point where no one, absolutely no one, has any inclination about certain segments of information that have been withheld from us. And uh, I think that the UFO phenomenon, along with this other phenomenon of, uh, of geoengineering, is something that for some reason, is being withheld. And I'd like to know why. I think one of the things that we need to find out is that there are mechanisms in place, and these mechanisms that are in place are so insidious and so dastardly that no matter how much you bring the information up, no matter how much you promulgate the information, those in the power-based structures of uh, large media have ways of completely disassembling this information, completely making this information irrelevant. And that's a concern that I have. Um, we had a guest on earlier talking about um, the disappearance of the Malaysian flight that we're all kind of um, in, uh, sort of captivated by. And his basic theory is that this particular disappearance is not necessarily a crash scenario. And this scenario is something that has been planned by whomever and that this so-called missing jet has somehow been commandeered by pilots, quote-unquote terrorists, whatever you want to call them, and um, taken to a place where it landed safely. And his information was that through intelligence that he has, and he has operated in deep intelligence black operations that this jet is being kept for a doomsday scenario and uh, this doomsday scenario involves somehow putting on board this Boeing 777 a nuclear device and having this Boeing 777 take off again and then make its way over any place on the planet he's suggesting Israel he's suggesting North America this thing could happen anywhere and have this Boeing 777 detonate the nuclear device and in essence destroy um, parts of North America and this would create an electronic EMP pulse that would eliminate all forms of electricity and this is a very fear-based scenario I, I will admit that but most of the information that we've been getting from news agencies, it's clear that we're not getting the whole story. And this is what I alluded to earlier, that we just may not be getting the right information. Or at least we're getting strung along somehow to believe that the search is still on. That the search will eventually yield something that is um, palatable to all of us, that is somehow acceptable to all of us that we can say fine thank you very much end of story and it sort of has its uh, ending as most of our television scenarios do you have a, a problem introduced at the very beginning of the hour you have all kinds of conflict during the hour but eventually the viewers find out that 
that the scenario is fixed, it's done, it's over with. So we're okay then at the end of the hour. But what if this individual that I'm alluding to is right? What if that jet is sitting someplace and just waiting to be used by a terrorist organization? I'm not saying that's the case. Far that, uh, that's far from what I'm saying. It's, that's not what I'm saying. But if it is, if that is in fact the scenario, we're sitting on a time bomb here. We have a call. We have Joe on the line. Joe, yes. Yes, Victor. Victor? Yes, go ahead. Um, I, 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 I follow prophecies from visionaries. Mm-hmm. And one of the visionaries I met before she died was uh, Carol Amish. She wrote a book called Bands of Love. Mm-hmm. And in which she described how an, uh, an atomic weapon would be used on in on the United States, and this uh, this scenario that th- your guest painted tonight seems awful reminiscent of, of that of, of, of what's in her book. Mm-hmm. People will have to go away f- for for a while f- from the contaminated area and and uh, and, and move apart, move away, and then God's going to going to. Uh, reclaim the land where, where, the, where the bomb hit and they can go back home. But for a while, it'll be, uh, it'll be rough going. That's, that, that, that's, that is a prophecy that she, that's in her book. I read her book, mm-hmm. and uh, that's why I say that this, this guy might be right on the money. Well, it's, uh, what, what was the name of the book again? Bands of Love. Bands of Love. By Carol Lamiche. Carol Lamiche. A-M-E-A-M-C-H. E-M-A-M-E-C-H-E. Well, very, very interesting. Thank you very much for your, for your call, Joe. Take care. Thank you for calling in. We have to take a bit of a break, and uh, we'll come back on the other side and maybe throw a few other ideas around. This is The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Victor Vigiani. Stay with us. Good evening, once again, back on the other side. My name is Victor Vigiani, and I'm sitting in for Richard Serrett tonight. And Richard is under the weather, as I mentioned earlier, and we're trying to um, redirect the ship so that uh, he'll eventually take the place uh, it, that I'm in right now next week. And by the way, we should mention that next week we do have a, an interesting, I guess, bunch of information for you, as we usually do on this show. And just want to sort of bring you up to date as to what just could be happening and, and uh, just frame it for you so that we can, you know, give you... Uh, some information that's not something that you would consider every single day. Next week, uh, Richard and I will be uh, talking to Tim Ball about UN Agenda 21. Uh, I'll leave that out there for you to have a look at. It's called UN Agenda 21, uh, and our guest next week will be Tim Ball. And also, um, Gary Hasseltine, a UFO researcher. I had the pleasure of um, witnessing uh, Gary Hasseltine's um, testimony at the citizen hearings on disclosure last May, and Gary is a former uh, United Kingdom uh, police officer, detective, and he gave some absolutely staggering information about the UFO phenomenon that he experienced firsthand as a police officer. In um... So we'll get to that next week, and right now we want to introduce our, our guest this evening, and it's a, it's a fascinating situation because it has to do with pyramids, and this evening's guest uh, is a Bosnian-born uh, individual. He lives in Houston. 
or he did live in Houston, he's uh, discovered ancient pyramidal complexes in uh, Bosnia. This Vizoko, I guess I hope I have that right, which consists of five colossal stone structures in the shape of the pyramid with extensive prehistorical underground tunnel networks. He's established nonprofit organization. As an archaeologist, he has uh, established the Foundation of the Sun, and also he teaches at an American university in Bosnia-Herzegovina as an anthropologist professor. We would like to welcome to our show Dr. Sam. And, Doctor, I'm going to ask you to pronounce your last name for us. <laughs> Hello, Victor. So this is Dr. Sam Osmanagic. Osmanagic, good. Great of you to be with us. And uh, um, you have a fascinating story to tell us about uh, this this new discovery. Now, as, as far as my information is, is concerned, I, I'm familiar with the Egyptian pyramids. I know that there have been pyramids in other parts of the world, in Mexico and, and different parts uh, of the planet. Uh, they seem to be a very pervasive kind of structure that has been endemic to, um, to history throughout the ages, uh, independently, uh, I guess, uh, constructed. But now what you've done is you've, you've located a whole different series of, of pyramids, and there's a whole lot different about these. Um, just give us an overview of what you found. Yes, you're right, Victor. You see, almost everything they teach us about the ancient history is wrong. The origin of man, civilizations, and pyramids. For pyramids, they tell us that they are built in Egypt and Mexico, and that's wrong. They are built all over the planet, on all six continents. For Egyptian ones, they claim they are built as tombs or pharaohs. Again, wrong. No pharaohs, no mummies in the biggest Egyptian pyramids. For the 25 years, I've been researching pyramids on six continents. And then, in April of 2005, I came to my country, Bosnia, near the capital city of Sarajevo, the town of Visoko, 20 miles to the northwest. And first, I saw the hill in the shape of the pyramid with four sides, triangular faces, obvious corners, the same slope from the bottom to the top. Mm -hmm. I took a compass, and the compass showed me that the sides of the pyramid match the cardinal points. And that's how the pyramids were built. And even though in Bosnia they are covered by dirt and forests, I knew that they were artificial structures under the layers of soil. So from 2005 until today, it has become the most active archaeological site in the world. Every year, I'm getting four to 500 volunteers from 40 to 50 countries and all continents. We spend 350,000 hours on archaeological digging, sample testing, radiocarbon dating, and concluded that we have at least five pyramidal structures in Visoko, which I named the Bosnian Pyramids of the Sun, Moon, Dragon, Earth, and Love. And below the pyramids, a huge network of prehistorical underground tunnels and chambers. And the whole valley I named the Bosnian Valley of the Pyramids. I see. Now, mm. this project brings seven elements that will forever change our view of the ancient history. Number one, these are the first pyramids in Europe. Number two, they are the biggest, the largest on the planet. For example, the Great Pyramid of Egypt, 147 meters in height. The Bosnian Pyramid of the Sun, over 220 meters. The element number three, the orientation of the sides to the cardinal point. 
are the most precise on the planet. So far we thought it was the northern side of the Egyptian pyramid, mm -hmm. the most precise with the error of zero degrees and two minutes in Bosnia, it's zero degrees, zero minutes and 12 seconds. The element number four, below the layers of soil, huge rectangular blocks. We've analyzed them in seven institutes for materials in France, Italy, Prague, and Bosnia. They all told us it was artificially made concrete of exceptional quality. The element number five, through the radiocarbon dating, they figure out that the age of the pyramid is 29,200 years, which makes them the oldest pyramids on the planet. Element number six, below the valley, as I said, huge network of prehistorical tunnels, which is the most extensive under any pyramid complex on the planet. And the element number seven, in those tunnels, we've been discovering huge blocks analyze them also and they are ceramic blocks so they are proof of very advanced technology based on those seven elements we know that history books will have to be changed well that's that's quite a mouthful now just take i want to take you back a second when you say that they're covered uh, in soil how how deep would the, those layers of soil be that they've accumulated obviously over thousands of years. How deep would they be on, on average? Same like in China, Mexico, or Guatemala. Mm -hmm. In China, there are 250 pyramids in the central province of Shanxi, layers of soil up to one meter. In Mexico, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, up to one meter. In Bosnia, around one meter, three, four feet. Closer to the top, a little bit less, about 40 mm -hmm. centimeters. Closer to the bottom, one and a half meter. So after thousands of years, and of course the wind and humidity and vegetation, you know, they got covered because the climate is different than, for example, in Egypt and Peru, where you have desert conditions. When you say that the uh, there's blocks underneath, um, I, I, we've all seen pictures and documentary uh, reports on the way the, um, the Egyptian pyramids, for example, were constructed. Do you have any uh, sense of how this particular uh, series of, of pyramids were, were constructed in the same way? or? Uh, of course we do. It's different. Every pyramid has its own local scenario. In Egypt, you have limestone and mm -hmm. granite blocks. In Mexico, sandstone and granite. In Guatemala, volcanic stones. In Peru, you have adobe bricks. In Bosnia, the sun pyramid is covered in concrete blocks. And the concrete was made from the material they extract from the underground tunnels, which was conglomerate. And conglomerate is nothing but pebbles, rock, sand. What they did as a binder, they used melted clay. The ancient Romans were, were doing that over mm -hmm. 2,000 years ago, but also in Bosnia, much, much before that. When it comes to the quality of the concrete, two elements are important, the hardness, water absorption. Hardness, our concrete today in 21st century, 10 to 60 megapascals. In Bosnia, 134 megapascals, two or three times better. Water absorption, our concrete up to 3%, and this one in Bosnia, only 1%, also superior. The ancients had formulas and knowledge about the construction materials 
more advanced than we do. Well, let me just dwell on that point for a second. Uh, and I've done a little bit of research in, into different kinds of, um, uh, I guess, the locations of the pyramids and just general reading. Uh, it's, let's just depart for a second uh, about the shape of a pyramid, just, just the shape itself, irrespective of where it is on the planet. Um, t- two points. First of all, how or why has the pyramid become such a pervasive kind of structure independently constructed throughout the planet? That's my first question to you. And then, is there a, is there a specific reason why these pyramids have been created where they have been created? As a matter of fact, out of two, we can make one. The answer to your first part about the geometry and why they are everywhere on the planet. What I do, I classify pyramids to the original ones, which are the biggest, the most superior, and the oldest, and those that came later, which are basically the replicas. And we can see this scenario in Egypt or in China. Mm-hmm. Now, the biggest one, well, the ancient builders knew that the most powerful geometrical shape when it comes to the energy is the shape of the pyramid. Why I mention energy? You see, in Bosnia, the first year of the project, 2005-2010, we spent proving that we have construction complex. And really, if you have the shape of the pyramid, which is covered by artificially made blocks, you have inner passageways, you have perfect orientation, you have underground tunnels, somebody constructed a complex. Now, our next question is, why? What is mm-hmm. the true purpose of pyramids? Egyptologists, archaeologists, geologists cannot help us. Nobody teaches them in schools about the true purpose of pyramids. So, we ask for the help from the experts in energy phenomena, uh, geophysicists, electrical engineers, and physicists. The first one to come to Bosnia was PhD in physics, Dr. Slobodan Mizrak from Zagreb, Croatia, Mm -hmm. who determined with his team that on the very top of the Bosnian Pyramid of the Sun, there was an energy beam, electromagnetic in nature, frequency of 28 kilohertz, radius, of four and a half meters, focused and continuous. His readings are confirmed by Serbian electrical engineer Goran Marjanovic, Finnish sound engineer Haik Savolainen, and Italian anthropologist Professor De Bertolis. When you have four independent teams mm-hmm. coming at four different times with their own equipment, and they're all getting the same readings, this is what we call international independent scientific verification of the phenomenon. Which one? This energy beam going through the center, through the top of the pyramid. Obviously, it is not a natural phenomenon. You have to have a machine to generate this beam. So in other words, the Bosnian Pyramid of the Sun is not only the biggest pyramid on the planet, but at the same time, the biggest energy machine on the planet. The next energy phenomenon we measured on the top of the Sun Pyramid was the ultrasound beam. When I say beam, it means that you can measure those energy phenomena only in this particular radius. You go left or right, Mm -hmm. no measurements. So the ancients knew how to manipulate with different energy phenomena. So how how would would the, the, the ancients... Um, 
how would they have known that this kind of structure could could be a machine? Did they use the machine for for other other purposes, or did they just create it because it had an aesthetic value? This or did is, this is how they knew that? That was the second part of your previous question: mm. the locations of the pyramids. Ah, extremely important. I see. The pyramid by itself does not generate energy from nothing. What okay. They would do. They would place the pyramids over very potent energy places. I see. In the case of Bosnian pyramids, the Visoko Valley in the heart of Bosnia, mm. according to three labs in Vienna, Austria, Belgrade, Serbia, and Zagreb, Croatia, they told us that the source of the electromagnetism is 2,440 meters below the pyramid, either a huge iron plate or iron ore. Why iron? Because iron generates its own natural electromagnetic field. What the pyramid does, it sucks this energy, amplifying it and focusing. How do we know that it amplifies the energy? Our Russian friends, Professor Kavroshkin and Professor Tsiplakov from the Schmidt Institute from Moscow, measured the strength of the signal at the bottom and at the top of the pyramid. At the top, it was 50 times stronger. And now we know why. Inside the pyramid, our Austrian colleague, Klaus Dona, got the measurement through the geophysical methods, and we know that there are seven levels of passageways from bottom to the top, and they are laid out as a spiral. So this energy is going through this spiral, spinning, and becoming much, much stronger. So it seems that they generated this particular frequency and energy beam. And when we measure this energy beam after it, released the pyra- after it is released to the pyramid, as we go higher, this energy beam is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, our technology is saying, if you move away from the source of the energy, then the signal should be getting weaker. And let's call this Hertzian technology. But since in Bosnia, everything is upside down. Okay. The pyramids work differently. You move away, the signal is not getting weak. Doctor, can, can I hold you on there for a second? We just have to take a bit of a break, okay? All right. uh, we'll come back on the other side and we get to, I've got some questions about the way this energy radiates. Uh, just fascinating stuff. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. In any case, uh, my name is Victor Vigiani, and I'm sitting in for Richard Serrett uh, this evening on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. For those of you who've just joined us, uh, Richard is under the weather this week, and he will be joining us next week. Um, let's hope he uh, he's uh, able to uh, to recover from his uh, his um, I guess setback. He's okay, but uh, just feeling under the weather. My name is Victor Vigiani, and uh, we're talking this evening. Uh, we're talking pyramids this evening uh, to Dr. Oz Manigic from uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, who's talking to us about the lost pyramids or I guess recently found pyramids in Bosnia Herzegovina, and talking about the energy related to these things. And these things are much older, apparently, than the the Egyptian pyramids. And I'd like to do two things, uh, hopefully in a segment, uh, Doctor, is to look at. I'd like you to review again the idea behind the tunnels. Uh, I guess uh, are the are the tunnels underneath each one of the pyramids, or are they linked together? With all the pyramids. What what role do these tunnels play? We have a huge network of prehistorical tunnels and chambers below the Pyramid Valley. The entrance we discovered, two and a half kilometers from the Sun Pyramid, and so far we have cleaned and secured 
for the visitors, 1,100 meters of those prehistorical tunnels. And they are like a labyrinth. Every five, six meters, you have intersections, tunnels going to the left, right, back, and forth. So we can see two civilizations inside. The first one who built those tunnels, technologically very advanced. Thousands of years after constructing, they have not collapsed. And the second civilization, who for some reason brought a lot of filling material, filled them up, they built the drywalls, and they closed them off. So what we do, what this other civilization, when they fill them off, what they did, we are actually cleaning them again and moving towards the sun pyramid. When it comes to this project, we apply interdisciplinary scientific method. It's not only archaeology, Egyptology, geology, but also satellite analysis, thermal, geophysical, energy readings. Plus, besides the physical science, we are looking this project through energy and spiritual realm. So, on one hand, it's very exciting. It's a new discovery. On the other, unlike any other project in the world, in the the area of archaeology, Egyptian pyramids, Chinese or Mexican, which are always with the selected information and elite science. In our case, no elite science. We have opened the project for everyone, for volunteers from all over the world, for visitors, no confidential information. People come and they realize it's a huge discovery. And we have another important aspect, the healing aspect. People come to those tunnels, they realize that the concentration of negative ions which clean our blood from viruses and bacteria are dozens of times higher than, let's say, on the mountains or in the forest. Mm -hmm. So somebody was building underground healing facility. The next thing, no cosmic radiation that are harmful to our bodies that we can measure in the tunnels. No natural radioactivity. So our body cells don't have an enemy. So the moment you get into the tunnels, your body cells start doing their job. And their job is to fix the problems in our body, to start the self-healing process. So this is an amazing discovery. So you're, you're talking about energy that can somehow have healing properties to it. So you would enter the tunnels and uh, whatever pathology you may have, that energy can recognize it and do something about it? good thing about our research is that everything is measurable. You get oscilloscope and other scientific instruments and you measure, when it comes to the electromagnetism, two major frequencies. The first one is 28 kilohertz, the second one is 7.83 hertz. 7.83 hertz in science is called Schumann resonance. Everything resonates in the nature, Mm. but the best resonance for humans for our physical, spiritual, and mental abilities is the Schumann low, low resonance. Now on the planet, our frequency is rising. In 2012, 14.5 hertz, 2013, 15.1, and this is very bad. Mm-hmm. Because this higher frequency directly attacks our brain waves. We are becoming more and more nervous, aggressive, stressful. And guess what? The Bosnian pyramid complex has been generating 
of low frequencies and they are the guardians of the best energy field for humans. I see. Now, the people who live in this area, uh, the, the Bosnians that, that actually live there, uh, who, who either know or do not know about the, the, the structures that are there, is there any evidence pointing to the fact that they may have been influenced by this, this healing energy, or do you have to actually enter the, the tunnels to, to, to benefit? People haven't known about the existence of pyramids until I came in 2005. They thought it was a natural hill, simply covered with oh, forest. I see. The tunnels have not been known to them. I discovered them in 2005 also. Okay. They had an entrance and they considered it a natural cave. It was completely sealed off. And then when we started cleaning, we realized how huge the underground network. And only when we entered inside, people would be coming with their testimonies. For example, people with asthma, they go inside, they breathe excellent, they got outside, they don't need air pumps anymore. People with all kinds of allergies, they got outside from the tunnels after a couple of hours. The allergies are gone. All kinds of pains are gone. Mm. And that, when we started doing those measurements about the energy and the negative ionization and realized how beneficial for human health it is, and not only that, also for the spiritual abilities. Mm. Namely, we measure the ultrasound frequency of 28 kilohertz inside the tunnels and on mm. the top of the pyramids. And this frequency is the best frequency for the levitation process. So the ancients knew how to get the proper frequencies, and that is the amazing part. I'm going to hold you there for a second, Doctor, because uh, this is just fascinating information. When we come back after the break, I do want to venture into sort of the, any evidence about human presence in these, uh, in these structures, which fascinates me. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, and my name is Victor Vigiani. Stay with us. Once again, welcome back. My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett tonight on The Conspiracy Show. We're talking pyramids this evening, and uh, lots of interesting information from, uh, I guess, an authority, probably uh, the only authority uh, that can explain exactly what's happening in Bosnia with respect to these to these pyramids. Uh, and, 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 Doctor, we, we really have... Um, uh, not really gone thoroughly enough into this. We'd probably need another two hours to, to get into it. But um, I'd like to find out from you, uh, is there any evidence of, um, of, of human uh, either habitation or presence in, the, in, these, in these pyramids like that, that, that dates back many, many years? Now, we are still not under the pyramids or in the chambers within the pyramids. I see. But we've been finding chambers a couple of kilometers away from the pyramids, underground also. Those chambers are empty, huge intersections, very complex underground network, but no bones, organic materials okay. that belong to the builders. We are finding interesting and uh, rather intriguing artifacts made from granite, for example. Yeah. Obviously, they've been shaped, but it's hard to say if they belong to the original builders. What we can say for sure is that they did have technology to create the best quality concrete. They knew about the cardinal points, east, west, north, south, and with excellent precision they could orient those sides, and they knew how to manipulate with the energies. Mm. Do you have any explanation as to why the orientations of these particular uh, pyramids are that much more accurate than the ones, uh, say for example, in, in Egypt? Why is the orientation important? Everything is the energy, as we know that. Our planet is a huge energy ball, and energy flows go 
north-south, east-west. When you build a structure in the shape of the pyramid with four sides, and when you perfectly orient it, then the planetary energies initiate the movement of the energy within the pyramid. And it is it was always about the energy in the past and today. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it fascinates me that um, this, this whole idea of drawing energy from the Earth, I mean, it, it's something that I've done a lot of reading on myself, and uh, it's something that I accept you know, uh, in a way that uh, internally that I can I, that I can deal with it. There are many people who um, just don't understand the concept, and I guess we're getting now to the point of how we, uh, as North Americans specifically, have sort of attenuated ourselves to a worldview that says that this kind of stuff just doesn't happen. And not only does it not happen, but it's it's not in our history. It's, it's not something that we've paid attention to in the past. So what, what seems to me to be, in addition to all the fantastic and fascinating things you're saying about the existence of these pyramids, what you're saying is that we have to rewrite history. We have to redate our ancient history to really tell us what the true story is about not only how these things were constructed, but what they can actually do. And that's going to mean leaving behind a lot of destroyed notions about what ancient history really is. You're right. So the first thing about the ancient history, they teach us that history of humanity is history of evolution. Wrong. They're telling us everything started with Sumerians, and then Babylon, Akkad, Assyria, ancient Egypt, ancient India. Wrong. This is just the last civilizational cycle. Mm -hmm. For this one, there was another one which ended 12,000 years ago, and Mm -hmm. another one 18,000, 55,000, 75,000 years ago. It was cycle after cycle after cycle. And the second thing, when we talk about the energy on conceptual level, look what we have. Coal, dirty industry oil and gas, limited sources. Mm. We have, instead of wireless, we have wire, power lines, you know, where we lose the energy during the transportation. The ancients were using natural energy sources. And in the case of Bosnian pyramids, they build a complex, which is the proof for the existence of first perpetual motion machine on the planet. It mm. has been working for 29,200 years because we can still measure those energy phenomena and they are not natural. Mother Nature does not make those focused energy beams, ultrasound or electromagnetic, but you have to have machines, you have to have artificial sources very smart. Mm -hmm. Would you imagine that uh, this kind of information that you're sharing with us, um, and juxtaposed to, like would you mention, fossil fuels and transmission of electricity over wires and the loss of that energy, and all of the technical things that we have developed over the last, you know, two to three hundred years in terms of technology, and even more so now, um, I'm just sort of wondering... uh, how would that kind of, of concept change under the utilization of the energy that, that you're saying is there? Is it something that can replace what we have, uh, be an adjunct to it, or, or completely um, uh, set it aside in terms of uh, making our forms of energy archaic? Instead of, instead of what we've been using, we could have clean energy, unlimited sources, non and phenomenon, the energy that, you know, getting stronger and stronger, mm-hmm. we could have wireless transportation of the energy and the free energy. 
And of course, last couple of hundred years, they were aimed exclusively to profit. You cannot sell the free energy, mm-hmm. so the elites are not interested in such kind of inventions. What Nikola Tesla did 100 years ago, or what we are finding now with the pyramid technology. Is this one of the reasons why Tesla's uh, information was virtually destroyed or, or taken out of his home? Is that basically? In 1899 and 1900, when Tesla constructed his today known as Tesla's coil. Mm-hmm. You know, he was able to send energy beams from his lab in Colorado Springs to the ionosphere. This beam would reflect. It was coming back to the Colorado Springs and then he would lit up 10,000 homes. So it was clean energy and it was free energy. Now, have American corporations, corporations accepted this discovery? Of course not. Mm-hmm. How would J.P. Morgan make money selling the free energy? Instead, him and his colleagues started investing a lot of money in hydro, thermal, nuclear power plants today. So they're spending a lot of money in the power lines. They lo- lose 20 to 50% of the energy so they can sell it to us and users for a lot of money. But the day will come when the free energy will become accessible to all of us. And that will be the first pillar of free society. The second pillar will be the free flow of energy. Instead only to elites, it should be coming to all of us. And based on those two pillars, we will have a society of free women and free men. That's quite a a philosophical position to take, but it also has some very, very practical aspects to it. Uh, what you're talking about is revolution of, of a kind that we haven't seen in um, in, in, in decades, in, in, in eons, in terms of human development. How do you see that really breaking the surface of the, the glass ceiling that we have over us right now and the, and the control that corporations have? How do you see what you're talking about breaking that glass ceiling? The way we are heading now is so wrong. Our technology will mean destroyment of our civilization. We need to stop that because of our future. And the pyramid technology is one important way out. We need to lower the frequencies of our planet, and we can do that with the pyramids, not only in Bosnia, but with those in China, Egypt, Mexico, or Peru. We need to find, to activate them, or through the reverse engineering, figure out how the ancients doing that. Hmm. So the ancients knew something that we either don't know or are rejecting. Is that what you're saying? There is nothing new to be discovered. Just to rediscover. I see. Tens of thousands of years, yes. And I think that we need to figure out how they were doing that. In my research, I realized that, for example, the oldest pyramids in China are the biggest. The same thing in Egypt, the same thing in Bosnia. It meant for me that this technology had been brought. Everything else, anything, what they were building, you know, after that, they were trying to build the replicas, but they had no technology or knowledge to do that. So let's see how those original builders were thinking. What did they know that we don't know? We know, among other things, that they were applying sacred geometry they were using the number pi, 3.14, mm-hmm. golden cut, you know, equilateral triangles, and they lay out their structures and pyramids. 
they were smart and they were always using natural sources of energy. Well, these natural forces that you're talking about, um, they, they seem to be becoming more and more prevalent in some of the discussions I've had, uh, you know, in, in, in conferences that I've uh, participated in and uh, in different aspects. Actually, I spent some time in Sedona, um, Arizona, during the March break uh, here in Canada, and uh, spent a week there and talking to people about that location on the planet, the, the Sedona area. It's about five, forty-five hundred feet to 5,000 feet above sea level and the monumental structures that are there and the, uh, the, the kind of, um, I guess, peacefulness of that area. And no matter who you speak to, there is this, um, there's this implication that that area in, um, in North America anyways has a very, very shared type of energy uh, to it. Now, there are no pyramids, obviously, but people speak of that kind of energy existing in that particular part of North America. Do you have any information as to why that might be and why people are literally, um, you know, they, they congregate in the Sedona area to, to experience this energy? Sedona, but not only Sedona, Teotihuacan, Mexico, Machu Picchu in Peru, Tibet, Giza in Egypt, Bosnian pyramids. What we have in Bosnia, we attract tens of thousands of people every year. They go to our tunnels, they climb the sun, the moon, the dragon pyramid, and this is what they tell us. We feel like we are at home. People from Brazil or Peru or Colombia or New Zealand, Australia, India, Pakistan, Egypt, Norway, U.S., they're saying they feel like they're at home. Of course they're at home because they came to the best energy field for them. On our planet, we know that underground we have ley lines, energy lines. We have underground water streams also generating the energy. So we have some very potent places. And those that we mentioned earlier, yes, they are potent places. And what the ancients were doing, they were building their huge monuments like pyramids, tumulus, conical shape, artificial hills. They were building megalithic sites like Stonehenge. Avery Hill, Anand Shag, Yonaguni Monuments, Baalbek in Lebanon. So they knew where to build it. And guess what? When you go to such places, you can measure that your aura, bioenergy field, is getting increased. When your aura is increasing, then you can develop your spiritual abilities. You can develop your spiritual senses. The ancients knew that besides five physical, we had 30 zero spiritual senses. Today, we talk only about the one, the sixth sense. Mm -hmm. But when you develop your spiritual senses, you can communicate remotely, you can communicate telepathically, you can do teleportation, you can heal with the touch or with the thought. And that's the type of the knowledge that we have lost over the time. Well, that's, uh, that's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, kind of, you're talking revolution here of ideas, too, and rewriting history. Do you have a website to share with us? Our official website, bosnianpyramidofthesun.com, bosnianpyramidofthesun.com, and my official website, samosmanagic.com, samosmanagic.com, and I'm coming to Toronto to Total Health Expo, April 5, 12 o'clock, I'm going to have a lecture from 6 to 9 p.m., I'm going to have a seminar the next day, April 6th, Latvian Cultural Center, the next day, April 7th, Ottawa, St. Paul University, and our organization from Canada, Blissful Health. 
will be bringing people for one week tour to Bosnia for the summer solstice. And I will be hosting the tour, and we're going to have a lot of fun. Well, that's great. We thank you very, very much, Doctor, for joining us this evening. You've opened up doors that uh, we've all yet to pass through, and I hope we take the opportunity to speak again. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Well, I think I'm going to be booking a flight to Bosnia. I've never been there before. Uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, My name is Victor Vigiani, sitting in for Richard Serrett. We hope you'll join us again next week here on The Conspiracy Show. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.